Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Al Westerman. I have the great privilege to be pastor here at Auburn Bible Chapel. This morning marks a special one. We've been in a series talking about misfits of the Bible for what seems like forever. And now today, we begin the first chapter of a new book that will take us into Easter. We're going to be going through the book of Luke and taking a closer look at the meals Jesus had. We'll pay special attention to who Jesus chooses to have a meal with, who shows up uninvited, and what we can learn about the heart of God through stories of food and fellowship. Have you ever had someone important come over for dinner? Maybe it was your boss, or perhaps shortly after you moved out, for the first time, you had your parents over for dinner, and you wanted to prove to them that you had your life together and that you're on the right track. It's possible you've hosted a family gathering, and everyone was going to be in your space. Hosting, in this capacity, puts you in a position of vulnerability. Allowing people into your space opens yourself up to them. And there are different levels to allowing people into your space, aren't there? The most comfortable one is to go into someone's garage, deck, or patio. They're, those, are, those spaces are part of your house, but they're also sort of separate. Therefore, comfort levels are pretty steady in these cases. Next one is the front door. This is a big one. It's one thing to get a little chatty with someone at their front door, or comfortable there, and provided it isn't too hot or too cold outside, you might just stay there. But it's a whole nother thing to invite someone into your space and to break the barrier of the front door. It depends on how well you know someone. But it is a pretty big step when someone utters the phrase, come in. Doing so assumes mutual trust and acceptance of the other person. The final level that we'll talk about today is actually sharing a meal with someone. God intended food, moreover mealtimes, to be a bridge, fast-tracking and connecting people. Food and fellowship go so well together. There's something precious and intimate about sharing a meal. You learn the person, their culture, behaviors, attitudes, and personality simply by sitting down for a meal together. It was similar in Jewish culture back in the first century. To have a meal with someone was not a flippant occurrence. To have a meal with someone showed trust in the other person. It showed, in a very real sense, that you validated the person or people that you were eating with. I can prove it using the Bible. In Galatians 2, it's reported that during his apostolic ministry and after Jesus' ascension into heaven, Peter is eating with Gentiles. Then some of his circumcised law-type friends arrive, and Peter abandons his convictions. Peter believed that someone's cleanliness was not connected to where they were born. Rather, it was by being washed by the blood of Jesus. But he knew that others didn't feel the same way. He knew that by his sitting with these so-called Gentile sinners, he was validating them and putting himself on equal ground with them. Because of his fear, Peter leaves the table. He is then confronted by the Apostle Paul, and this is a big, complicated ordeal. The other example is from 1 Corinthians 5.11. This is a stern command from Paul. 
Here he says, Now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. Don't even eat with such people. Why is such a hard line drawn about eating with people? A term used to describe what we're talking about is table fellowship. Scholars agree that table fellowship was a way of conveying mutual acceptance. This is why Paul was so adamant that if someone is a believer and openly living in sin, you do not approve of their behavior by voting yes with table fellowship. This is also why it would have been such a powerful example for Peter to stick to his convictions and to live out the revelation God gave him in Acts 10.15, saying that we should not call anything impure that God has made clean. When we understand the importance of table fellowship and look at who does Jesus choose to eat with, who does Jesus validate by table fellowship, what are the traits that he values? And when he comes for dinner, what does he care more about? being in a clean house and having a well-prepared meal or a humble, joy-filled attitude, welcoming him and others. To use a metaphor that we'll use later on in the series, to not simply have the outside of the cup or what other people can see clean, but to clean the inside, the heart as well. And we're going through the book of Luke because it shows so many different sides of Jesus when people who have been in church for a long time but haven't read the Gospel of Luke finally do, they often say, this is the Jesus that I never knew. And we see, especially in the book of Luke, Jesus' heart for the lost, his pleasure toward integrity and humility, and his hatred of hypocrisy. Why dinner? Well, two reasons. The first one I've just stated, and that of table fellowship and mutual acceptance. The other is that I love the personalization of it. The idea of having Jesus for dinner is one that resonates with me. What would it be like if Jesus came to your house for dinner? What would you do to prepare yourself? Would you clean in a rage-filled fury to make sure the place was immaculate, clean the outside of the cup but forsaking the inside? Or would you rest in the joy and the peace that he offers? Would you be present? Would you give him your attention and devotion? Over the next few weeks, we'll be learning more about Jesus. One of the best things we can do in this life is to know him more. We'll learn by looking at five of the meals that Jesus shares with various people, and we'll discover together who Jesus is, what he values, and what that means to us. Let's pray. Father God, my prayer for today is simple. I pray that you can show us your heart. I pray that you shine through, that you allow your truth to resonate within people. God, may we understand more about who you are, your heart for the people around us, what you value. Thank you, Lord. So there's a true story of a young man who asks a pastor if he needs to stop smoking pot before he can become a Christian. The pastor answers, no. The young man thinks the pastor must be confused, so he clarifies, 
do I need to stop smoking marijuana before I can come to church? The pastor smiles and says, no. The young man is speechless. So the pastor continues. What you're asking is this. Do I need to clean myself up before I can come to Jesus? To which the answer is, no. Jesus is the one that makes you clean. When we live having a relationship with him, he cleanses us from the inside out. He changes our desires. And he convicts us of our sin. But not only of our sin, he convicts us of our value. Now the point of this story is not to minimize sin, nor is it to excuse or allow sin. The point of the story is to remind us that the gospel works. Sometimes it makes life a little messy. The point of the story is to remind us that the kingdom of God is not reserved for people who are squeaky clean, for those who haven't made mistakes, or for those that we deem to be worthy. It is an odd thing, but if we're honest with ourselves, we do think these thoughts. Perhaps we phrase them a little bit differently, but to some extent, we believe that people have to deserve grace. You may recall the definition of grace at this moment. And grace is, by definition, an undeserved or unmerited gift of favor. So it would be impossible to earn grace. Subconsciously, however, we want people to fit in our box of reasoning. Said differently, we want them to have had a bath before they're able to see and experience Jesus, the church, and Christian community. There's even a pressure not to be associated with people that have bad reputations. We've heard the phrase, being guilty by association. We can also be so worried about the verse, bad company corrupts good character, that we can miss the very heart of Jesus. But even when we say this, we have to ask, isn't that wise? Isn't it wise to avoid bad company as to not blemish our own good character? It's a good question. And I wish to be clear on this. If the temptation to fight whatever it is that you're putting yourself into is too great, you're probably not ready. For example, if you're a recovering alcoholic, it's probably not wise to do bar evangelism, as an example. But this caveat acknowledged, is there space for us to go into some of the darker corners of the earth and to shed some of God's light there? I would hope your answer is yes. If we do, will everything go smoothly? The answer, and a big point of Brent's message last week, is a resounding no. Can you expect that all your friends and family will understand what you're doing? Moreover, will everyone in the church understand? I doubt it. In fact, sometimes... The more religious people are the ones that have the hardest time understanding. It was like that in Jesus' day, and it continues to be a challenge up into the present. So would you turn into your Bibles to Luke 5? And we're going to be looking at verses 27 to 32. This is early on in Jesus' ministry, and it happens shortly after he's led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. From there, he went to his hometown of Nazareth Nazareth, and was rejected. Then he went to Capernaum, where he realized the Spirit of God was available to perform miracles. Then he heals the paralytic and was lowered through the roof. 
And this is where we pick up in the story. So verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. Now, it's not too uncommon for people in the Bible to have more than one name. So Levi is also identified as Matthew in the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 9, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me. Follow me, Jesus said to him. I was trying to do my impersonation from The Chosen, where he's like, follow me, but I I just can't do it well. Um, Jesus said to him, and then Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. As Jesus had been in Capernaum, for some point at this time, it was very likely that Matthew was already aware of Jesus' reputation. It was also possible that when Jesus called Matthew out of the life that he had been living and into something infinitely greater, less comfortable, and of deeper significance, the words, follow me, resonated and burned with his heart. What we do know is that Matthew responded exuberantly. Well, how do we know this? Verse 29 highlights to us the fact that Matthew held a great banquet for Jesus. We can't be sure exactly how wealthy Levi or Matthew was. He was a tax collector, but he wasn't a chief tax collector like Zacchaeus. But regardless of how wealthy he was, he went all out. He held a great feast, a banquet even. Matthew expressed his love, gratitude, and affection for Jesus the best way he knew how, and he held nothing back. What was Matthew so excited about? Matthew was, as has been mentioned, a tax collector. What that means is that he would have been ostracized by the Jewish leaders, and that they would have removed him from the synagogue and, by extension, the Jewish community. He would have been an outcast to the Jews, and especially the Jewish leaders. Sadly, he may have even become used to neglect and hostility. He would certainly not have expected a rabbi to seek him out. Not in a culture where prospective pupils, if they were to feel worthy, would request to follow a certain rabbi. Matthew didn't feel worthy. He didn't feel included. He didn't feel part of the community. In fact, he knew that he wasn't. And what's more is that this was no ordinary rabbi. This rabbi had made a splash in Capernaum. Jesus preached in a way that people had never seen. Luke 4, 31 to 36, gives a really good picture of his renown. So verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. And then here's where we find out of his renown. 
all of the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. All of the people were amazed by Jesus, and the word spread about him. However, even though Jesus was a revolutionary, Matthew probably shouldn't get too excited, because no rabbi would allow Matthew to follow him. There's good news. God doesn't see people the way we do. God looks at the heart. And God doesn't prefer that people have their lives totally together. What God really wants is people to rely on him, to trust in him, and to love him. But we have to imagine how Matthew would have felt when Jesus stops in front of his tax booth. His heart drops, and then it starts beating rapidly. He froze, paralyzed with fear. What was coming his way? Judgment? Probably. Rejection? A reminder that Matthew was a filthy sinner and needed to repent? And fear, all Matthew could do is brace himself. But what came next, Matthew never expected. Follow me, he said. And for the first time in years, Someone had seen value in Matthew's character. Sure, he had value to his superiors as a tax collector, but not as a person. And where rejection had become his norm, he was now experiencing love, acceptance, and even promotion from two simple yet life-changing words. This meeting with Jesus was a turning point and a trajectory change in Matthew's life. And as things go, Matthew was excited and he wanted to share with his friends. When you get excited about something, do you like to share with your friends? I admit that I can be a little excessive about this. And when I see a movie that I really like, I tell people about it. By the way, if you haven't seen Show Me the Father on Netflix, watch it. It has amazing God stories. You want to watch Show Me the Father or, or a show. Like I've talked about The Chosen several times because I just get really excited about it. Or perhaps it's like a, a diet strategy or an exercise routine or something that I find value in and I experience progress with. I get really excited about it and I usually don't shut up about it with my friends. And that's what people do. Matthew did that too. He was very excited at his sudden life change. And in his enthusiasm, he invited all of his friends. Now you can imagine the kind of friends Matthew may have had. Some of them were liars, others drunkards, others swindlers. Most of them would have been idolaters. They would be idolizing money. And perhaps even prostitutes. If you can't imagine, you don't have to because the Bible informs us in verse 30 that they were tax collectors and sinners. Now, what would they have thought about Matthew's recent conversion? Was there disbelief? Was there incredulity? Or was it a change that they could see in Matthew? Could they notice the joy in his eyes? Could they hear the hope restored in his voice? Could they see the determination, purpose, and value in the way that he held himself? Because 
here's the thing. Following Jesus looks like something. And the way that we act, the way that we interact with other people, and the way that we react with, to situations all say something about our faith. Could Matthew have convinced all of them by his transformation in such a short time? I bet he convinced a few. Following Jesus looks like something. And as we live life with him, we are continually transformed by his spirit. Matthew invited several people to come to his party. However, there were some that he didn't invite that came anyway. When some of the religious learned that this new supposed rabbi invited a tax collector to follow him, they had to investigate the legitimacy. Upon arriving at Matthew's residence, they were horrified at what they found. It would have been bad enough for them to have seen Jesus accept Matthew by way of table fellowship, but now he's eating and drinking with all manner of scoundrels. So in verse 30, they ask, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So understand this. Nothing is in the Bible accidentally. So why is this question here? Why was Jesus eating with them? How could he? Wasn't Jesus too holy to consort with these types? The religious people seemed to be. But here Jesus sat among sinners. The contrast couldn't be greater. The religious people had actually missed the very heart of God. Jesus is the representation of the Father. Jesus is the perfect representation of the Father. And so what does this show us about the Father's heart? Jesus demonstrates the Father's heart by loving people. That includes people that are hard to love. People who are in addiction. People who are needy. People with different views, opinions, and political standing than him. The Father's heart is to show love to all. And Jesus spent his life with a variety of people, most of them very different from him. So a question is, why? Another question, and I'm curious what you guys think, is how do you think the people around Jesus felt? How did Jesus make the people around him feel? This is an actual question. Loved? Welcomed, absolutely. A little louder? Free. Free? I like that. That's really good. Seen. Seen. Oh, that's a good one. I like that. Convicted. Convicted. And valued. Valued is a really good one. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, humanized, not just an outcast. Yeah, amazing. I, th those are the things that I wrote down. I also had hope filled. They, feel, they felt like they were filled with hope again. And they had something beautiful modeled for them. Now we ask, <laughs> what is the feeling that you cultivate within people? When you're around your peers, coworkers, fellow students, how do they feel around you? Relieved? Judged? Do they matter to you? Do you look through them? 
One free gift that you can give people is to allow them to experience the joy you feel when you see them. This is huge, actually, in a lesson that I've learned the hard way. So I spent 20 years or so working with my dad, and we worked hard. We worked 7 to 5.30, and there was no wasting time. So if you were to talk to your wife on the phone, it was, hey, honey, what's the news? Okay, love you, bye. All business, no chatting because there's no wasting time. So, <laughs> when, I'm, I'm just trying to excuse my bad behavior in this. So, when I began working in a church, and Chantel would call to chat, not for a long time, maybe like three or four minutes, I would answer, well, how do you think I would answer? Yeah, you guys are wise not to answer that, that's fine. <laughs> my, my greeting was somewhere between a grunt and what? It was like, huh which does not accurately display or portray how precious my wife is to me. <laughs> but how does she feel when she receives a greeting like that? She feels like she's a nuisance in that she's not worth my time, which isn't at all the way that I feel or what I, how I want her to feel. Uh, you'll be happy to know that I've worked on this and I've gotten a lot better at it. The story was brought home to me in a very powerful way the other day by my friend Jen. She went on a missions trip to the Arctic, and as she's getting off the plane, she's greeted by one of the elders at the church. He puts his hand on her shoulder, and with tears in his eyes, says to her, the Holy Spirit moved in our hearts last night, and we are so glad that you're here. <sighs> my friends, with a greeting like that, how are you going to feel? You're feeling like you got the wind at your back, don't you? God has gone before you, and you get to now work into what he has for you. This is so huge. Imagine you come home from work, or you go to work, or you go to your friends, whatever, and the person who sees you, their eyes light up. It feels like their soul lights up and they're so excited to see you. How does that make you feel? And to know that you can make other people feel that way too. Your eyes are a massive part of this. Jesus made all of those around him feel important, loved, and valued. And I'll ask you this. What is more likely to bring about life change in people? That or making people feel like they're hopeless sinners, that they're pariahs in the filth of society. Jesus may have spent time with people who are metaphorically dirty, people we think should have a bath or to be clean before they're able to come to him. Yet, Jesus invited them to come, showed them a better way, and that they themselves had nobility. He made them feel better about themselves, and they began to desire to be clean because they're worth it. Consider like a car. What you feel and believe about your car affects how you treat it. If you have a car that you deem is valuable, you're very, you're very careful when you load things into it. You're very sure that you take your trash out when you're done. And especially if you have a high performance car, you're much more likely to put in the best oil and the best gas. Now, if you were to contrast that to if you had a 
hunk of junk on wheels, you don't care if you scratch it, oil changes go overdue, junk piles up, and you put 87 in it all the time. The heart of the Father is this. Realize your value. He doesn't see you the way that you see yourself. He sees you as immensely valuable. Then his will for you is to see, model, and prophesy that value into others. Remembering that prophecy is to share God's perspective and to speak what's not as though it were. This then is what happens. As people take better care of a car that they think is valuable, so too they take better care of themselves and others when they discover the true value. My friend Adam from Disciple of City said something once that really resonated with me. I mentioned it a little earlier, but it begs repeating. Adam was a drug dealer before he came to Jesus, and even once he became a child of God, he would still do drugs. This is his line. Then Holy Spirit began to work in my life, and Holy Spirit began to convict me, not only of my sin, but also of my value. As he would go to church, after having just partied till 2 a.m. the night before, read the Bible, and meet with God in prayer, he began to see that God had more for him. He could walk with his head held high. He didn't need to escape the world through drugs, but he could live in the freedom, joy, and purpose that God had for him. Present day, he devotes his life to equipping people to disciple others and to share the gospel. But imagine if someone would have been suspicious of him and asked him what he was doing the previous night, then shamed him and told him that he shouldn't come back to church until he straightened his life out. I'm, I'm grateful that wasn't his story. Instead, he was shown a better path. He was accepted as he was, and he was encouraged to grow. He didn't need a judge. He needed a doctor. This is actually how Jesus identifies as a doctor. In verse 31, he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. If this is true, then a church should be similar to a hospital. So, who are you in the hospital? Are you a patient? If so, and you feel like you need healing, great. I am so glad you're here. And I'm so grateful for you. We, the church, live to serve people like you. Perhaps you're a doctor or a nurse, and you actively go around trying to make people feel better. Maybe you're custodial. You're someone behind the scenes, perhaps not getting all the glory, but you are so profoundly important to the running of the hospital. Or maybe you're visiting patients. The importance of this should not be underestimated. People in the hospital recover quicker and more fully and experience less pain when they have people come and visit them. The Apostle Paul informs us that we are the body of Christ. What is implied and expressed here is that no one person has every skill, point of view, or capacity in and of themselves. Instead, God has designed it so that we work together. It is together that we can be the total package. And if we are the body of Christ, 
You don't get to be the clothes. You don't simply get to come along for the ride. God invites you into something better, something far more difficult but infinitely more meaningful. You can't be all the roles in a hospital or in a church, but hopefully you can be one of them. You will find joy and satisfaction when you discover what that role is. How do you discover this? Try. God didn't make you solely for yourself. You were designed to be in community, contributing and caring for others and helping them get well. Jesus said, not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, I wonder if this was intended to be a catch-22. I wonder if this was designed to be an impossible solution. I mean, think about it. Who needs a doctor? Someone who is unwell or people who are reasonably well but want to get healthier. In short, people who realize they need a doctor. More, how do you get and stay well? A doctor. Did you know that doctors have doctors? Pastors have mentors. Professional athletes have coaches, and usually several. What's the point? Jesus identifies that next in verse 32. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The point is that Jesus is looking for humility. Someone who admits that they have need for a savior and that they can still grow, that they can still learn. The opposite of this, and it is the attitude exhibited by the religious leaders, self-righteousness. If you don't allow space for Holy Spirit to move in your life, if you already have it all together and there's nothing to be learned, if you classify people who are different from you as outsiders, you may be sliding into self-righteousness. We live in a broken world. We all need help. We all need community. And we all need love. And this is not a black and white classification. I doubt that anyone in here is fully and truly self-righteous, but it can be a sliding scale or a slippery slope. We are called to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that he hates. Jesus loves people of all varieties, even the ones who are hard to love. We are to hate exclusion and self-righteousness. The religious leaders thought that they were healthy and didn't need a doctor. And ironically enough, that is the very reason that they needed one. There is no one too far gone for Jesus to save. There is no one that he wouldn't accept. In fact, the people that think that if they were to step foot into a church, that they would burn up or turn into a pile of salt are the very people that Jesus came for. Jesus came to earth to be the only and the perfect sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. When we accept this, we exchange our sinful nature for his righteousness. My friends, the Father's heart for you is to understand your value. He wants you to realize that he loves you and that he has good things for you. Even if you feel like Matthew, where you've been excluded. Understand that you have been accepted in his love. When you do that, you'll hold your head a little higher. You'll walk a little taller. You'll experience a little more joy and a little more peace. Like Matthew, 
this life transformation might be something that you're excited about. Maybe you want to live it. Maybe you want to show and tell the people around you. Because Jesus wants that more for them than you do. This is a good thing. This is a desire that the Lord has put within you. So when Jesus comes for dinner, how will the position of your heart be? Jesus voted yes for the least of these by way of table fellowship. Jesus shows that he values humility, being willing, people being willing to come to him. Understand the Father's heart is for community, for restoration, and it's for you. Let's pray. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Amen.